Well, welcome everyone. My name's Andrew. I'm one of the ministers here. I'm going to pray as we orientate ourselves for this passage. Heavenly Father, please calm my nerves. Please help me to speak clearly. Lord, we thank you for your great mercy. Uh, We thank you that uh, we were once not a people, but we are now your people. Help us now to hear your words and to to submit to what it says. Amen. Amen. Peter in the Gospels, I think, is a great character. Some years ago, I heard someone describe him as like a Labrador. This big, goofy, oscillating guy from one side to the other. He wants to go here. He wants to go there. He's impulsive and he's reactionary. When Jesus was walking on the water, Peter, he wants to get out of the boat with him. And he does. But then he sinks because of his doubts. Peter is the disciple who says Jesus was the Christ. He nails it. But then in a couple of verses' time, he explains to Jesus what the Christ is to be, and Jesus calls him Satan. Peter in the gospel seems impulsive and rash. He wanted the kingdom to come now. He wanted Moses and Elijah to set up camp at the transfiguration. He wants Jesus to be the Christ, the one to save Israel. He's keen for it. And even though he keeps on getting swatted down from time to time, he's on board with Jesus. At the foot washing, he doesn't want just his feet washed, he wants all of him. Do me, I'm all in. That's him. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus was praying deeply because he was deeply distressed. Peter was one of the disciples near him. He was asked to watch out, but he was falling asleep. But then, in the dark... Judas turns up with a mob armed with swords and clubs. Judas greets Jesus with a kiss, and then all of a sudden, the mob seizes Jesus. They take him, and good old Peter pulls out his sword, because the best way to stop a bad man with a sword is to be a good guy with a sword. And maybe because he wasn't that great of a swordsman or is aiming somewhere else, he takes a swipe and hits Malchus, one of the servants of the high priest, and chops off his ear. And Jesus, while being arrested, rebukes Peter. He says, put away your sword, for all who draw the sword will die by the sword. And then Jesus heals Malchus's ear before being dragged off to be whipped, trialed, and executed. That night, retaliation and rebellion was not on Jesus' agenda, but it was on Peter's. And on the same night, hours later, when Peter was asked by a servant girl if he knew Jesus, brave Peter steps back and denies it. He denies knowing Jesus three times. He retreats and avoids conflict. And so in coming to our passage today, it's amazing to think that it was Peter, the one who was willing to draw swords when threatened, and the one who was willing to deny and retreat When asked about Jesus, he is the one who writes this passage. He doesn't seem like the excited Labrador now. He is serious and he is hopeful. He is realistic and deliberate. 
And so Peter talks about how Christians are to submit to the structures they find themselves in, under governments, as slaves, next week in marriage and in chapter 5 in the church. We are to follow the ways of Christ who submitted and suffered when doing good. What do you do when you feel like you're backed into a corner? Are you a fight or a flight person? Peter tells the Christians to do neither. They are not to retreat from the world and form their own little community away from society. They are not to retaliate and overthrow the system. Instead, Peter is telling the Christians to live within the structures they find themselves in and to do good there. They are not to be seen as lawless or disruptive in society, but how Jeremiah told the original exiles to seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. We are still to be in the world living our lives, not putting up fences from the evil people around us, not setting up our own little colony, but living and interacting and working alongside those who do not know the marvellous light that we have been brought into or the great mercy that we have been shown. And so for today, you might want to think of a target with three concentric circles in them. These circles are structures that we may find ourselves in, like governments, workplace, marriage. But we must remember the general principles that we have already seen in this letter. They still apply. It's like the background colour of the target. This represents who we are under God. And verses 11 and 12 help remind us what this background colour might look like. It's sort of a summary of what we have already seen. Peter says, Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. While the original readers may have been actual exiles from Rome, they are to, be, they are to remember that this world is not all there is. There is an inheritance and our salvation that is waiting for us. Although for a little while, they may, be, they may have to suffer various trials. They are to change their lives around, to repent, if you will, from their empty way of life, and instead to be like the Heavenly Father who is holy. Their lives are to be marked as good. They are to do good deeds, even if someone accuses them of doing wrong. In our passage, doing good is mentioned three times, and three times they all seem to have a slightly different result. In verse 12, doing good may mean some people will accuse you of doing wrong, but the good deeds themselves may show the glory of God. In verse 15, God wants them to do good, for it will silence the talk of foolish people. Accusations against them will be seen as false because of the good deeds. And verse 20, God will commend those who suffer because they have been doing good and enduring it. Doing good and suffering because of it is a repeated refrain further in this letter as well. So it would be helpful to get some understanding about what doing good means. Well, first off, whatever doing good is, 
people's responses isn't a great litmus test. Some may speak ill of you and accuse you of wrong. You may even suffer for doing good. The world and those around you may think that what you are doing, that when you are doing good, it actually isn't the right thing you should be doing. It may say, don't speak up when you hear something wrong. It's none of your business. Don't be honest with the budget numbers for next year so your project can get more money. Don't admit the fault is at your end or the way your department handled something. Depending on your situation in life, applying your Christian morals may not make life pleasant for you. Secondly, doing good is an action and it is possible. We have a strong understanding that we are not saved by our works, that we cannot earn our salvation from our actions. But we may forget that once we are saved, the work we do is good. We aren't saved by our good deeds, but we are saved for good deeds. Paul says, For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Doing good is living consistent with your belief in Jesus. It is an action to improve or to help somebody or society in the standards that God has set. It involves putting your interests and needs and welfare of others before your own. It may not have a positive outcome for you in the short term, but it is something that God is pleased with. It is your faith in action. It is something that comes from obedience to the truth of the gospel. It is loving God and loving others. Good works are the opposite of evil. We are to turn from our evil desires we had in the past and be obedient children to God, to be holy, because he is holy. We are to see the characteristics of God and to take them on. And Peter says, in doing good around us and for others, some may notice. Some may ask, why do you live a different way? Why do they feel like you're a safe person to talk to? Why you seem so trustworthy? Well, the type of person that seems to really listen. That person may see your good deeds and from that come to know the reason for the hope that you have and also glorify God. But some may not. Some may have it in for you as the goody two-shoes in the office, as the do-gooder, as the one that makes them feel uncomfortable with themselves and their actions. They may talk about you behind your back, make up things about you, or misread motivations behind your actions. In all of this, still do good and let the results of your work silence their foolish talk. And it may even get worse than that. Some people may not just not like you, they may hate you because of your belief. We may feel like this group is growing with what we hear in the media and how Christians are portrayed by some activists. Regardless of this one-dimensional stereotype of Christians in the public space, we're still to do good. Doing good is a choice. It is voluntarily. And Peter turns to look at two structures his readers find themselves, and one more next week, and tells them to submit and to do good in them. And we, we may not like the idea of submission. It means to put yourself under. Today we see this as some sort of infringement on our human rights. We want to be free, 
have options, to be the masters of our own destiny, to be not tied down by anyone or anything. In the words of the great band and theologians, The Living End, with their song, Prisoner of Society, they say, well, we don't need no one to tell us what to do. Yes, we're on our own and there's nothing you can do. So we don't need no one like you to tell us what to do. You sing a song like that in Australia, it goes double platinum and stays on the charts for 69 weeks. That's our sentiment. But that is not the Christian perspective. The Christian life is one of submission. Like it or not, God is sovereign. And one day, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that he is Lord. We are created. He is creator. Christians are to submit to God, to put themselves under him for his sake. We are to obey and follow his instructions. And we may think, yeah, sure, we can do that for the biggest power in the universe, but why must we do it for another human, another created human authority? Aren't we all equal? What makes others more important than me? Was Aristotle right when he said in his book on politics that some people's purposes is for the work of the body, and that is the best that can come from them, for they are slaves by their nature. Are some people slaves by their nature? Are they kind of two sorts of humans, some to rule and some to be ruled? Is that true? Not at all. In the Christian perspective, submission is a choice. It is something we do voluntarily. We don't spread the message of Jesus by the sword and force people to believe. We freely submit and gather in worship to declare the good news. But we can't make someone else to believe it. In the same way, someone who wants to be free and do what they want without caring of others around them, we make our own choices and voluntarily submit. It is something you do and are not made to do. And it doesn't remove your dignity or your status as who you are. It is a choice, one of many that we have. And it doesn't affect us. From last week, the background colour, remember? In verse 9. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. That is our new identity. We are now in a new people group. So what do we do? Do we start a new Christian nation? Do we overthrow the evil government? Do we join the sovereign citizens who, for some reason, just think you can self-declare you're not under the government? No, in verse 16, live as free people, but do not use your freedoms as a cover-up for evil. Live as God's slaves. We are free, and we are slaves. We are now free people to live how we want, not to cover up evil, but to do good. We are slaves to God. He now owns us. We are his special possession, not the government's or our master's. We are God's people. So we are free, and we are to live in submission to God. And as we love him and love others, we submit to him and submit to others. So what happens if you become one of these chosen people? How do you live? What if your government wants you to sacrifice animals to the emperor? What happens if you become a Christian and your master worships another god? What happens if you become a Christian and you're married to a non-Christian? 
Now that we're God's slaves, do we leave the empire? Do we leave our master's house? Do we leave our marriage? Is that even possible? How should we think about these structures? Peter puts governments in their place under God. In the Roman world, there were citizens and non-citizens. There were some who were more free than other others. But Peter tells the believers, those who say that Jesus is Lord and not Caesar, that they are free people. And as free people, they are to live under the government in submission, giving honour to the emperor. They are doing so because they have chosen to do. They are doing so because they are slaves of a higher ruler, God. And the government has a role. In verse 14, the governors who are sent by the emperor are there to punish those who do wrong and command those who do right. Governments may not enact justice always evenly or fairly, but that is their role. And as we find ourselves under their structures, we can submit to them, putting ourselves under their judgment and under their systems of punishing wrong and commending those who do right. How do you use your words when you're talking about the latest political news cycle? Are you fair and honourable in your words? Do you know better than the MPs and have better ideas on how it should be? Will you still put yourself under their authority? Would you use the proper structures in place to let them know of your brilliant ideas? Do you give them honour? Peter then talks about probably the least free people in his culture, the household slaves. In verse 18, the word for slave is quite a nuanced word. It means household slaves. These people normally lived with the master and slept on the top floor of the house. They could not quit or find another job. Their slavery wasn't like the ones that we see in American movies. It wasn't based on race. If you found yourself bankrupt, there was no safety net. So the thing you were meant to do was to sell yourself in exchange for your labour. Back then, being a slave cut across all sorts of jobs. Some could be doctors, teachers, managers. Some slaves had their own slaves. Approximately one third of those in the Roman Empire were slaves, and they could gain their freedom. And most expected to be out by the age of 30. But it wasn't all rosy. Slaves had little rights. They weren't... If they weren't happy, they can't just leave. If they did run away, they could be killed. In the short letter of Philemon is about how Paul meets a runaway slave, Wanamus, who becomes a Christian. And Paul sends him back to be greeted by his Christian master. So if a Christian was to find themselves a slave with no rights, what were they to do with their faith? Submit to God because of who they are. They are free in Christ but a slave to God. They are to entrust themselves to the judgment of God, knowing that he sees and judges each person's work impartially. And it may be hard. There may be household worship that they won't take part in. They may be looked on with suspicion. They may get beat for it. And Peter says, go find a sword and start chopping off people's ears. No, actually... In verse 19, he says something different. He says, For it is commendable if someone bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because they are conscious of God. It is commendable. It is to their credit. 
God, their master, would approve of them bearing unjust suffering because they know God, because they did good. He then points to the example that we are to follow in our dealings with suffering. From verse 21. To this you were called, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his footsteps. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled in their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were like sheep going astray. But now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your soul. Jesus left us an example to follow, to walk the same path as him, to take up our cross and follow. He did not return insult. He did not retaliate. He did not threaten. He trusted in his father, in his judge. In Jesus' suffering, he doesn't just give us some sort of sentimental model to follow, but he also actually healed us of sin. He took our sin and died so that we could live for him. And we have now been brought back to God who looks after us, who has our souls, our inner person, our being, even when things are hard. However, we are to live in this world under authorities. We need, however we are to live in this world, under authorities, we need to see that Jesus is the model for us today. So what does this mean for us? You might have a million what-if questions going on in your mind. What about this specific situation? What about if the government uses my tax dollars for things I don't agree with? What if my boss is asking me to work on some hot-button issue project? This can be complicated matters in and of themselves, trying to work out what is good. If you retreat, Will it do more good or not? If you speak up, what will happen, even if it is against unjustness? There can be some real consequences from doing good in the world that sees it as wrong. But before we think about that, let's not lose the general principle, which is to submit to the structures that we find ourselves in. And in them, we are to do good. Don't retreat or retaliate but submit to the systems in place, not insulting others, but trusting in the true judge over all things. Are you willing to submit to the government, not because we may have ways and means that we can live anywhere in the world and Australia is the best choice, but because we need a right order of government. They are under God. They are not God. When they ask us to vote, Use the systems with a level of responsibility that they have given us and vote for the best ways of doing good. Be informed on both sides. These are a wisdom issue uh, that we have, and we have a community here to help us. We're all living stones be built together. We are a new people. We can talk amongst each other and even disagree, but don't insult the other side. Do not be unfair about our MPs. Give them honour. Be informed and do good. Likewise for work, we are to submit and do good, not because we always have the option of quitting and working in any place we choose, but because we have a right order of work. 
It is under God and under the government and is not God. When we work, don't complain to those around you how things could be done better. Tell your boss and accept their decision, even if they listen to you or not. Work on the projects you are asked to do. Work out your conscience in them. Do good. Work hard. So depending on your temperament, there may be some possible things you might want to think about. Are you a dominant Danny, a confident Charlie, an assertive Andrew? Are you trying to get ahead, to get the credit, to play the politics at work at the expense of others or of other teams? Are you competitive and people just need to understand the game they play at work? All's fair in love and war. If that is you, then submit. Put yourself under your boss and work well in your team. Don't be part of the rot inside your group. Do good for your boss, not for yourself. Are you a meek Mary, a quiet Quinton, a passive Pete? You tell yourself you really don't want to make any waves. Your boss says you're not that good at your job and you believe them. They give you all sorts of tasks that may be above and beyond what is reasonable but you don't want to complain or put anyone out. If that is you, then submit. Submit to the systems and structures in your workplace. Talk to HR. See if what is being asked of you is fair. Fill in the forms, jump through the red tape, work through the structures in place. You are allowed to leave. You have that freedom. This could be a real hard thing. Don't do it alone. Talk to someone else, maybe a life group leader, a trusted friend. While doing the process, don't gossip. Be fair in your statements and how you feel. Tell the truth and avoid bringing a sword to work and start chopping off people's ears. All this is hard and it is messy, especially in our current uh, culture. We are exiles in this world who belong to God. A few years back, there was a bit of a discussion in the Australian Christian blogosphere about how Christians have misread what type of cultural city we are living in. The argument goes that we thought for some time we were living in Athens. This is where people can have rational discussion with each other. It was a melting pot of cultures, multiculturalism, ideas, and Christianity can be argued for as one of the many voices in society. And Christians were quietly optimistic that though in this setting and everyone having a voice, people will easily see that Jesus is true. Steve McIpine in Perth, he argued our culture is actually Babylon. We are exiled in a place that is not our own. It has its own dominant worldview and asks for assimilation of all who live there. But regardless, as Christians, we are to live in the city and do good. Daniel he worked for the government and obeyed well. When pressed on his prayer life, he still obeyed God. Nathan Campbell, a pastor in Brisbane, he pushed back on Steve McAlpine. He says, we're not in Babylon, we're in Rome. It was the empire that crucified Jesus. It was a Roman cross that brought about his death. Rome killed Jesus, he says, and if given another chance, it would do it again. Our model isn't Daniel, it is Jesus. Daniel anticipates Jesus. Our passage says Jesus is an example for how we are to suffer 
we are to follow in his steps. And we may get tired of getting slapped down on certain hot topics like end-of-life care, sexuality, and abortion. But when we are confronted, we don't play by their games. We don't arc up and fight back. We love and forgive and respect everyone. We need to live a cruciformed life, one that is a mix of courage and humility. It takes courage to do good. It takes humility to submit. This isn't easy. This would have been hard back then to be seen as different. It's hard today to live a life in imitation of Jesus. It has always been the case, and we should not be surprised by this. So as we face this world, we may feel that it's harder to be a Christian in this generation than in the last. We must remember that we are under God so that we can submit to him and do good in the structures we find ourselves. We're not to retreat and opt out, not to rebel and push back. Remember who you are under God and submit to him. And in submitting to him, live a good life, one of service to him, for you're his slave. Remember Jesus' example, especially in his suffering, for he did not insult back, he did not retaliate. He had courage and humility. He died for our sins, gave us his righteousness, and brought us back to God. Let your good deeds show the wonderful light you have been brought into, regardless of what structures you find yourself in. I'll pray. Heavenly Father, give us courage and humility to submit to those above us and to do good work where we are. Give us wisdom to know how to use our freedoms in the structures we are in as we live as your slaves. Give us a heart for our world, one that does not retaliate or retreat. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.